in college when I was having all that low back pain and because I was an athlete I could get you know free access to health care I had a, a lower back MRI the message was told to me that three of my lower vertebrae were showing signs of beginning to fuse together which is sort of a hallmark feature of ankylosing spondylitis is spinal fusion the doctor instead of saying oh this is the you know sign of as i was told that i was causing this medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the u.s killing a quarter of a million americans annually 23 percent of europeans have been affected by medical error Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. If you're living with a complex chronic illness, you've probably had many medical appointments and probably experienced many medical errors. From the benign errors that did not impact your life to potentially serious errors that will forever lower your quality of life. When Chris Hill's pain skyrocketed and health tanked and no doctors were providing a correct diagnosis, Chris reached out to their estranged father, expecting to get advice on living with a disability. What Chris didn't expect was for their father to diagnose Chris with anachylosing spondylitis or AS an inflammatory disease that causes bones in the spine to fuse. This fusing makes the spine less flexible, can cause a lot of pain and greatly impact mobility. As Chris's body failed and Chris's identity as an athlete slipped away, so began a journey into the external financial world of healthcare and health insurance systems and a journey into the internal emotional world of trauma and meaning and growth. A journey that is taking and making Chris into an unintended chronic illness advocate, giving voice and political clout to the medically marginalized. In our interview, where we face some minor periodic technical challenges, so please roll with the intermittent audio glitches, Chris tells how they reinvented themselves and learn to love mobility devices like wheelchairs, symbols that represent disability to the able in our society. Chris shares how these disability symbols are actually tools to participate in society, 
tools of freedom. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Chris and a word of warning that some folks may be impacted by Chris's experiences with the healthcare system. Great, thanks, Carice. So, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in uh, Eastern North Carolina in the United States in a tiny town um, called Oriental that was the, the population when I was growing up there was around 800 people. So I literally knew everyone <laughs> in town. It was a small environment, pretty sheltered, um, but also it was a community that raised me. It wasn't, you know, any one small group of people. It was just the whole community. I call myself a free range child. I was in very rural North Carolina and didn't watch much TV. I spent a lot of time climbing trees, playing in agricultural fields that were behind, like that surrounded my home. And a lot of it, I was alone. I just entertained myself. Um, I had a, a mother and a stepfather for my childhood and was very close with my grandparents. I was also very involved in athletics from a young age. I began running when I was seven and playing basketball. And at one point during my younger school years, I was playing three sports at the same time. I think softball, soccer, and volleyball or track, something like that. So I was very active and very involved in church. Have I've loved cats my whole life, so I spent a lot of time with uh, cats. I think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> and then what did you do after high school? Where did your life lead you? I went to Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a women's college. It's a liberal arts school and I played soccer there. It's, it wasn't a fancy, like I didn't get scholarships and a lot of attention for playing soccer because it was a small school, but that was my central um, identity was being an athlete. And I studied sociology, got a degree in that, um, minored in psychology and women's studies and graduated magna cum laude began working two days after I graduated. So I jumped into the professional world. 
where I was helping disabled people get jobs. That was my job. And this is long before I was diagnosed with a chronic disease. So I saw myself as a helper, but I was healthy and non-disabled at the time. Okay. And so that's a good segue into what we're talking about today is your healthcare experiences. So take us on that journey. I worked in Raleigh, North Carolina in that job for a year and a half and it I got burnt out um, because I put all of my passion and effort into that and became a professional mover. Uh, so I gave up health insurance to do a really intense physical job because I'd just mentally gotten so drained from the previous work. And that in combination with having a bigger social life led me to California. So I moved to California in late 2011. And I think that was a big trigger for my um, health issues. So I had a lot of symptoms growing up that I look back on and I'm able to uh, label and identify as warning signs now, um, but they weren't, they were just something I lived with. So when I moved to Sacramento, California, um, a week after I moved here, I was in the emergency room for um, severe abdominal cramping. I never got a diagnosis for that. And I can bring that up later if it feels appropriate. Um, and I kept getting all these food poisoning symptoms for the next year. And within um, a year and a few months, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, which is an uh, systemic inflammatory disease that primarily affects your um, spine and multiple large and small joints of your body. And it can also uh, affect organs and all sorts of things in your body. Okay. I'm not familiar with that illness. Is it something people are born with, acquired? So in my case, I, I call it acquired, but all of the ingredients were there when I was born. Um, my dad had AS as well. So in a lot of cases, the disease can run in families, even though they don't say it's necessarily genetic, um, there's still so little research out there for them to actually know and be able to label that. Uh, I believe his dad also may have had it looking at pictures. I, I think it's a disease that is always a possibility and it can be triggered. So in a way it's acquired and in a way it's always it's just below the surface and waiting to happen and it can happen to anyone so and so what sort of symptoms were you having that you ultimately got the diagnosis of AS so as a child I I'd say maybe around 12 or 13 years old my knees would just ache and throb at night to the point that I would just cry myself to sleep and I thought they were growing pains. And my peers weren't talking about crying themselves to sleep. So I internalized it early on and just figured like, well, I just need to learn how to handle this pain. 
because nobody else was complaining, it sort of moved up my body. So I began having lower back pain in high school and that got worse in college. And additionally, my back began spasming. Um, and that was blamed on me being an athlete, which is is an error you know we can we can dive deeper into that if you would like and what led to the actual diagnosis was after moving to sacramento having all these early health issues with the er visits the food poisoning stuff late in the year 2012 i got an upper respiratory thing it felt like bronchitis, it felt like pneumonia, antibiotics didn't help with anything, and I was sick for months, and a lot of it, I was bedridden. I couldn't breathe well. I felt my brain sort of losing oxygen. Doctors were, you know, no tests were showing anything. Uh, and eventually in February or late January, of 2013, I went to urgent care twice in two weeks. One of those visits, I, you know, I was like, well, I'm, I'm sure I have pneumonia now and they couldn't find it. And the other visit was, um, I was having hallmark heart attack symptoms. My arm went numb, you know, I had severe achy pain in my chest and that's when they were like, well, we did an EKG your heart's fine. Have you considered taking medication for anxiety or depression? <laughs> so that's, that's what I took matters into my own hands because I was like, yeah, of course I'm anxious because I have all this physical stuff going on and, and you're not finding the root cause. And uh, so that's when I emailed my dad who um, was estranged from me. So he was abusive towards my family and um, wasn't a big part of my life from the age of two onward. So it was hard to reach out to him, but I knew that I needed to ask him questions. I was not expecting him to say, it sounds like you have AS because I was told as a child somewhere along the line, and this, this is wrapped into the medical error stuff, that that was only a man's disease and that I wouldn't get it because, you know, I grew up socialized as a girl. Um, so I thought I was in the clear and never imagined that I would have what my dad had that had um, extremely disfigured him. He was a hunchback um, and he lived in a lot of pain. So I emailed him thinking I'm going to get a health history from his side of the family and I shared some of my symptoms and his first response was, it sounds like you have what I have. You need to get in to a rheumatologist as soon as possible. And so that's how I found out. It wasn't a doctor. It wasn't my own you know, research online. It was my dad, my estranged, abusive father saying, you have the disease that I have. You need to go get diagnosed. Wow. Kind of 
ironic on some level. So how did the diagnosis and the pain you were living with impact your uh, athletic life, your social life, your work life? I, my whole identity was wrapped in being active. Suddenly that was, you know, the rug was pulled out from my feet and I could still do some athletic things, but it was a very sudden change where suddenly my body was like, well, that's it. We're gonna, we're gonna stop functioning the way you always expected that you would. And um, you're gonna have to learn to live with that. The only other time I lived with that level of function loss, if you will, was when I tore my ACL in my knee in college playing soccer and it took over a year to heal uh, and as an athlete that was like three times longer than it should have taken and I wasn't allowed to exercise. And was that lengthened healing process something to do with AS? Looking back I think so. AS is this is confusing to me still, but it's both an, you both have an overactive immune system and it can take longer to heal from things. Uh, so I, looking back, I sort of post uh, diagnose that as 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 a reason. And so when I lost my ability to exercise then and after my diagnosis, Mentally, I just went downhill because being active was my way of processing in my brain what, you know, what was going on in my life. Um, it was a form of mental therapy for me. And so I spiraled really quickly, uh, mentally and physically. I was working part-time, was missing a lot of work, and... Fortunately, it was a nonprofit job, so my boss was very understanding and arranged my schedule so that I could rest when I needed to. But yeah, my whole life changed in an instant, and it it was not a relief to get diagnosed. And, and I think a lot of people are relieved when they finally know what's causing their symptoms, but for me, it was the exact opposite. I saw my future as being my dad. I was going to become the abusive, deformed, and that's a real ableist term. I don't like using that. But at the time, I was thinking, I don't want to, you know, look like him because that means I'm going to abuse my partners and have an awful life. Um, so yeah, coupled with the loss of activity, my view of my father, you know, I was just in awful mental shape. Fortunately, I got a lot of social support from my community, which a lot of people don't get because I immediately started talking about my story online. I immediately began, I love fundraising and I saw that the, that a foundation was doing the fundraiser that was related to my condition so I was thinking, you know, I'm good at fundraising. This is one way that I can kind of control my situation. I can tell my story as a way to get people to donate me to this cause. 
and people really responded well they they knew how active i had been and if this was something that was taking away my ability to function they had no choice but to believe me they had no reason to question my story or that i was telling the truth so i'm fortunate that i got a lot of support from people but that didn't mean my social life continued as it was because i could no longer really go out all i was doing was working and then coming home and collapsing and then going to work and doing it all over again and that was just and so uh a couple of questions one uh did your health decline over time and two are there medications or treatment that help yes to both questions <laughs> my so those are two intertwined things i stayed in touch with my dad long enough for him to sort of get me to the correct place where i could get on a good medication and as soon as he began sort of manipulating his interactions with me i cut him off um, which was good for my mental health but he he's the reason that i didn't have to wait as long to get on a biologic medication i so it was about two or three years i think two years after diagnosis that i applied for disability so i was no longer able to keep up the working and then just collapsing and then doing it all over again and i was taking all of my sick days i you know i had all my doctor appointments to do and i just couldn't keep up and it was making me sicker so um, I applied for disability. Miraculously, I got it, but it took a couple years of fighting, which is sort of typical, um, with a couple um, denials and appeals as well. And in the middle of that process, I finally found a biologic that worked for me, that helped. It didn't, you know, remove all of my symptoms, but it helped and I could notice a difference. Um, still disabled but i could actually function a little better how did and, you manage to survive financially during that period while you're still waiting to get approved for disability and trying to access the medication yeah i i am lucky i'm very lucky that my last job was a job that had health insurance uh, and it paid me very well. So during that work, um, and that wasn't the nonprofit work, that was uh, a different job. I was making a lot more money than I ever had in my life. So I saved most of it, knowing that my body was, you know, becoming more unreliable. And I'm always, I've always been a frugal person. So closer to the end i just began saving more and more and preparing myself sort of for the unknown and that paired with my dad suddenly dying is what got me through financially 
um, as well as Medicaid, which is a, in California, pretty robust uh, form of healthcare. So once my income dropped to the point that I was really making much money, other than little writing gigs here and there, uh, I qualified for Medicaid. So all of my healthcare became pretty much free. Um, including, you know, specialty drugs and things. And so I always joke that my dad's death is what saved me. <laughs> like that was the best thing he could have done for my life was die. And I don't mean that in an awful way. Like um, it's literally the best thing he's ever done for my life. <laughs> Put you in his will. Um, he didn't have a will. But because I'm one of his children, I, of course, got a quarter of his um, money. And he lived on disability as well, so it wasn't a ton of money, but it helped a lot. Um, so that's how I survived alongside a lot of really kind people who would occasionally just send me money or... Um, ask if I had a wish list online that they could send me supplies um, and, you know, uh, things like food stamps to buy food. So, yeah, I consider myself lucky. I don't, I don't think luck is a bad word because really a lot of things just happened at the right time to keep me safe and alive. When we were emailing back and forth earlier, you mentioned a couple of uh, medical error experiences. Like, I assume you've had a lot of healthcare interactions over the years. Can you share a couple of those errors? Yeah, I have uh, spent a lot of time in healthcare environments. I think, so I was thinking about this earlier, and I think sort of the underlying like base explanation i'm not sure what word i'm going for here is the fact that uh, i have a vagina and that i was socialized as a girl i no longer identify as a woman i'm non-binary but i still have those parts and the medical system doesn't do a good job of listening to our pain and so that's sort of like a an underlying issue that contributed to a lot of um, errors that I've experienced. And I referenced this earlier. One of those things is the sort of the medical message for years. And that's still the case in some um, rheumatology offices that girls or women don't get ankylosing spondylitis, that it's the man's disease. So one example of that, uh, is in college when I was having all that low back pain and because I was an athlete, I could get, you know, free access to healthcare. I had a, a lower back MRI and um, the message was told to me that three of my lower vertebrae were showing signs of beginning to fuse together, which is sort of a hallmark feature of ankylosing spondylitis is spinal fusion instead of like the doctor instead of saying oh this is a you know sign of as i was told that 
I was causing this as a you know, 20 year old healthy athlete that I was causing my back a few because I was so active. Uh, and I just took it at that because at the time I believed doctors knew everything and I had no reason to suspect anything else. Uh, so that was sort of the first big error was, um, so that was when I was 19 or 20. I could have been diagnosed six years earlier if I had pursued that. So that's, that's one big error that has impacted my life greatly. Another was, um, this actually happened shortly before that. After my first surgery, which was on my knee when I tore my ACL in college, after the surgery in the recovery room where I guess I'm monitoring everyone waking up, as soon as I would wake up, a nurse or someone would come over and say, are you in pain? And I would say, yes, so give me morphine. And that happened probably 10 times. They weren't asking like what my pain was on a pain scale. They were just asking, are you in pain? And of course, you know, just had surgery, of course I'm gonna be in pain. Kept giving me morphine on top of morphine on top of morphine. And I don't know how long it took for me to actually, you know, get into the recovery space and go home. Um, and I think I've never heard of other people going through that kind of thing, but that's a big issue. <laughs> that could have caused some severe damage. But it does say, I think, a lot about the fact that I would live in pain for my whole life and that I'd learned how to ignore it so well. And so when somebody finally was like, are you in pain? I had permission to say yes. So a more recent example is I went to the emergency room for severe breathing issues. And this was before um, the coronavirus, the COVID pandemic. I could feel like my lungs just really constricted. And I was in the emergency room waiting for an x-ray on my chest. Someone came out and called my name. So I go up and I'm like, yeah, that's me. And they usually, you know, check your name and your date of birth when you arrive to make sure you're the right person. This person didn't do that. So they're like, yeah, we're going to do a shoulder x-ray. And I'm thinking, all right, well, I guess they know what they're doing. Uh, I don't know how this is related to my breathing issues but maybe there you know there's this new theory about breathing in your shoulder so you do these all these chests or uh, shoulder x-rays and i'm thinking all the time like am i supposed to be here like so then they send me back and i never hear anything more about the shoulder stuff they eventually have someone else come get me to do the chest x-ray and i think they were looking for me while the shoulder x-rays were happening <laughs> so i still like, wonder like did they put my shoulder x-rays in someone else's file do are my shoulder x-rays just floating in the internet 
Ethernet somewhere. I don't know. Um, that's just a really funny error. That's not like a serious one, unless it impacted the person's treatment who it was supposed to be. So that's that is a very funny issue. The only other error I can think of right now um, that's really upsetting to me is um, I have a lot of experience advocating for myself and I've you know researched including spondylitis for seven years because of had to I've had to learn so that I can educate my own doctors um, and so I know how my body reacts to the medications I know what side effects to look for and I take a lot of steroids. When I have extreme flares, those help under control. And I discovered a few years ago that they cause oral thrush for me. So I have to take uh, sort of like a pre-antifungal with the uh, steroids. But before I discovered that I had to do that, I would have to like go to urgent care each time I got the thrush, then treat it. And on one of those cases, I go to urgent care and I'm like, I have thrush. It's caused by my steroids. And the doctor was like, oh, no, you don't. And so I had to like advocate for myself to get treatment for it. And she, I could tell she was really upset because I was at problem patient clearly wrong and she refused to like research what was going on and in the end settled for giving me this like really safe if you will but non-effective oral thrush treatment that was just a tab that's supposed to sort of prevent it but it's not an actual treatment um i left so upset and then three days later i had an appointment with my specialist who looked in my mouth and was like yeah, you have thrush let's treat it so i went you know three more days finding this thrush that was getting worse um only for it to be validated <laughs> you know when urgent care doctors are sort of punishing patients who know more than they do about their bodies, it can lead to real issues. Unfortunately, thrush, it can become systemic, but in my case, no, we caught it soon enough. So your healthcare experiences, it sounds like, impacted how you moved into advocacy, and I'm tell me more about your advocacy work and the documentary you're in. Yeah, I I became an advocate um, from the start, and I tell people that I was catapulted into advocacy. It was not something I planned to do or become. I just began telling my story, and I saw the impact it had. And um, from the start, people were saying, you know, you're changing people's thoughts and opinions about chronic disease, making people more compassionate. It led to all these invitations. So I was invited um, to be an honoree 
uh, for like a fundraiser walk. And within a year, I was lobbying on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for healthcare policy. And if you, you know, if you take me back to that place again, I would still tell you, like, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> this wasn't in my plans. I just said yes to this opportunity. And, you know, even when they dropped me in those meetings on Capitol Hill, I still didn't know what I was doing there. But I quickly realized that if I could find the piece of my story that impacted that policy, that's all I needed to do was tell my own story. I didn't know how to change policy by going in and reading the document, but I could tell my story. And that is what actually changes minds. And so within a year and a half, you know, I'd been to DC and then I testified on a healthcare bill in California and that bill passed and I was featured in an Associated um, Press news article about healthcare. So I, I just went national <laughs> without even realizing it just for telling people what I was going through. And that sort of gave me a window into a new identity for the one that I'd lost in terms of losing my athleticism. I just kept saying yes, and opportunities kept coming, and it felt good to be able to help other people just by sharing my own story. And I tell a lot of people now that I know that if I'm experiencing something in my chronic disease journey or in my healthcare or health insurance journey, I know that it's happening to dozens or hundreds or thousands or millions of other people. And it just kept building from there. In late 2015, I began my blog, beingcarice.com. My first post went viral, which I wasn't expecting. That's unusual. What was your first post about? It was an open letter to healthy people from a formerly healthy person. And it spilled out of me. I was, I was actually fighting against starting a blog. My friends were like, you need to start a blog. You have so much to say. You're a great writer. And I was like, no, that's, you know, that's too much energy. I can't take on one more thing. So beginning my blog was like, the giving up the fight <laughs> um but the first post was just this stream of consciousness letter that just spilled out of me and i barely edited it before putting it out there and i think it just gave a lot of people voice because it wasn't this positive approach it was just real raw stuff and that that I think is still missing a little bit in people's public advocacy is just talking about the real stuff. And I had the guts to do it. And that reached a lot of people. And the blog led to a lot more. Now I'm very active on Twitter. I have a big following there. 
and I was invited to be part of a documentary, uh, I think in 2016. So with like three years after my diagnosis, maybe four years. And uh, that documentary is, be is called Becoming Incurable. And it features three stories of people with three different chronic diseases in um, Sacramento, California. Uh, there's me with AS. There's uh, Sophia with Lyme disease and chronic mold illness. And there's Leo with dystonia. So three very different stories. And um, that is out and it's available in the United States on um, Amazon to rent and watch. So that, uh, I'm sure there's so much more, but that's just a, you know, a glimpse into my advocacy and activism. So it sort of sounds like you've experienced post-traumatic growth. You have the trauma of the diagnosis and what it's physically doing to your body. And yet on the other side of it, you've come out with this new identity, doing meaningful work. It rings like post-traumatic growth. I, I'm not familiar with that term, but it makes a lot of sense. I do live with um, post-traumatic stress disorder and also anxiety and depression. Um, those are all three diagnosed. Um, but your, your phrasing there is, it sounds accurate and it sounds like how I've always lived. That my trauma response is action and it's not bad for me. It actually provides the space for me to grieve and do, uh, you know, I grieve by doing but it's still exhausting and I'm still learning self-care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. So how is your health now? And are there any new experimental treatments on your horizon? Um, physically, my health is still just way up and down. I did begin a new treatment at the beginning of the pandemic because uh, not because of the old one sort of stopping working, more because I needed a treatment I could do at home for safety, you know, health and safety. So that one has just sort of begun to get in my system and I'm learning whether it's effective. But I think my mental health is a lot better and um, the reason my mental health is better is because I have reached the base layer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I have stability. So I have, you know, financial stability in some way. I have permanent housing suddenly. Um, I fought for years to be able to buy a house and I managed to do that. Um, a year and a half ago. So having that stability has provided space for me to heal and get better at managing my mental health, which in turn helps my physical health. 
So I'm gardening. I have a garden in my backyard. I know that I'm not going to become homeless. Um, for the first time since I was diagnosed, I can buy things that I want sometimes and not just live in the space of not having enough. Wow. So. Yeah. To be able to purchase a home, especially as we're heading into tumultuous financial times is very important, especially for somebody who's sick and disabled. I love uh, my disabled identity. Since you're, you brought up the sick and disabled part, I love my mobility aids. Those provide uh, the ability to do so much more. I use a wheelchair sometimes, I have a rollator. So some folks may be surprised to hear you say that you love your ambulatory supportive devices. How did you get to that mental space? Uh, so for me, the reason I began using mobility aids was so that I could participate outside my home. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, some folks, when they first have to use supportive devices, it represents their failing body and it can be hard to accept. Yeah. So in terms of your advocacy, what's on your plate right now? I am just coming off several months of advocating related to the coronavirus and high-risk patients and people. A couple of my friends around the country started the hashtag high risk COVID-19, which went viral within minutes and it led to several media interviews and things like that. Like I'm part of a COVID related leadership council with a nonprofit providing free resources for people with chronic diseases. Um, Honestly, right now, I'm just really enjoying my garden. Wow. Yeah, you have to take care of your physical and mental health to be able to do effective advocacy and, and help other people. Well, Carice, thank you for taking the time to chat with me and for dealing with our technical challenges and for the advocacy <laughs> work you do. It's uh, really important that more people know about the challenges that uh, sick and disabled folks face. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be able to share with you. Thank you for your podcast. Thanks, Carice. Enjoy the rest of your day. Rest hard. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.